Hello, welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. You are watching one of our specials this week where we are interviewing authors of books that are coming out. I'm gonna say post-pandemic books so they can go around the country and actually see people and have uh, you know, the traditional book tour. But uh, for those of you at home, we have the privilege of speaking with an amazing author, Marlon Peterson. He is the author of Bird Uncaged, an Abolitionist Freedom Song. He's the principal at the Presidential Group, a social justice consulting firm. He is the host of the Decarcerated Podcast, a senior Atlantic fellow for racial equality and a member of the Aspen Global Leader Network, as well as the 2015 recipient of the Soros Justice Fellowship. And on top of all that, uh, he was named by Ebony Magazine as one of America's 100 most influential and inspiring leaders in the Black community. His TED Talk, you may not know, uh, you may remember, is Am I Not Human? Uh, it was a call for criminal justice reform. It has over 1.2 million views, probably more now at this point. Uh, because that's how the internet works. And, you know, last night I was watching TED Talks all night and I was like, how did I get into this rabbit hole of just watching TED Talks? It started with like watching something about psychedelics and then suddenly it's about cleaning my house. I'm like, how does this work? <laughs> the bigger question is, how did you start with psychedelics? I don't know, it was clickbait. <laughs> it was clickbait, TED Talk. That's what happened. It's like when an 85 year old is talking about psychedelics, you got to listen to it. You have to understand why. So Marlon, um, thank you for, for, for joining us today and, and sharing your story with us. Um, sure, thanks, man. So let's, let's talk about your story because this is, this is the root of the book. Uh, you grew up in, in, in New York City, in Brooklyn, um, and you uh, found yourself in circumstances that are not uncommon in this country, un, um, horrifyingly not uncommon, but are incredibly unjust. And you were uh, your life has been shifted drastically because of our criminal justice system. So I don't want to tell your story. So could you uh, share what happened to you when you were young? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm so Brooklyn, New York, and I always say uh, the, the son of uh, Caribbean immigrants. Um, and we, like many Black families, that, and I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and like many Black families who were poor, who were trying to make it together, particularly as an immigrant family, were trying to figure out ways to make ends meet. Um, but we were, I, want, I don't want to give the impression that we were like, dirt poor, but we definitely just had enough to, to get by. And, and I'm thankful for that. But, you know, growing up in a neighborhood, which is Crown Heights, Brooklyn, like once again, like many folks, we experienced a lot of things. Drugs was very rampant. There was violence around us, violence in my building, my apartment building that I grew up in. Um, and that alongside, as an aside, I was also an honor student, a Jehovah's Witness. I always kind of throw that in there. It's like, you know, because people tend to I think when we think about the criminal legal space and, and incarceration, there's this, you know, broken family sort of situation, single parent household and drugs in the household. And I want to sort of break that sort of mold and understanding that like the, the criminal legal space is a catch all, right? And particularly from certain communities, it doesn't mean you don't have to have, because I had a two parent household. Um, so, I mean, the book speaks about those experiences. It's also at a young age, I was sexually assaulted at gunpoint. Um, and I speak to like how that particular experience had, as a kid at 14 years old sort of shifted my complete outlook on what life was at that point in time to the point where, you know, five years, four years after that, I, my, I was myself shot. And then a year after that, at 19, I, you know, I was facing a life prison sentence um, for which I served eventually 12 years, 10 years for. So, um, but, you know, the, the book is also about really sort of creating a priming in a sense of 
how everyday trauma that we don't really talk about, and particularly when you think about young folks, how everyday traumas, particularly in black and brown communities, um, how that impacts them without them consciously understanding that they're being impacted by it. So, okay, so you 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 experience sexual assault, which I think everybody has a, an understanding that would affect your psyche. Were you aware of it at the time? Were you open about it? Was it addressed? No, not at all. Um, I hadn't. I, I kept it to myself for eight years. The first time I ever told anybody about it, I was actually on a prison visiting floor. At the time, I was still facing a life sentence, and I told my father about it. And when I told him, I, you know, I write about this in the book that I didn't verbally tell him, I passed him a note because I was so ashamed and so many things. And in the note where I described what happened, I literally said, please don't ever ask me about this. I don't want to ever talk about this. Um, and, you know, I carried that for a long time. And, you know, and there were a lot of, you know, in the book, I speak about cages a lot. It's not only, it's about physical cages, but about cages in our communities and our society that prevents us from addressing trauma. So at that time, you know, as, as a kid, I grew up in a, not, not only in a super religious household, but with, you know, with, with, with homophobia around me. And in my mind, like if people knew this happened to me by a man, it was a man that, uh, that assaulted me, or people will think that I'm gay, people will think that I'm soft. And that cage of homophobia, I consider like a cage in of itself, um, I speak about it, is that led me to so many, you know, many other bad decisions and more traumas uh, uh, throughout my life. And, you know, it took me eight years to eventually even tell anybody about it. But the first time I ever spoke about it um, was probably not until I came home from prison. So I was about in my mid-30s, the first time I had ever said it out publicly to anyone. It's interesting, you know, you hear these stories um, of sexual assault survivors where some may not even process it for themselves, maybe not even acknowledge themselves or bury it or... Uh, depending on the circumstances, you know, they may not even realize it's sexual assault. Did you, did you understand what had happened to you? Were, were had you even acknowledged that it was sexual assault internally? Um, or if so, when? I didn't, I didn't know what it was. And, you know, his, this is YouTube, but it was the first time it was at gunpoint and I didn't know what was happening to me in terms of like, with the, you know, I speak about it in detail and you're like, uh, it's even harder to even spot in some to some levels now, but the sexual act that he was performing on me, I didn't know what was. I actually didn't know what it was. What was happening? Um, I speak about in a book that I thought. I thought it was. I thought it was pee. Like I didn't. I didn't know what it was that was coming at that point. I, you know, I wanted me to graphic for your audience, but so I didn't fully comprehend what it was. And in some, in some, like many sexual assault survivors. I blame myself for it. I shouldn't have went there. I thought, you know, I was naive. I thought I was 14, I was 14 and in my mind, I should have been tougher than that. I should have been able to fight him off. Um, so I don't want people to think that I was soft. So I also, for that reason, kind of just kept it to myself as, you know, it wasn't until I was incarcerated, I was already two years into the, to the sentence that I finally said, you know, somebody needs to know that this happened. And so I told my father about it. Um. Okay, so then you 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 were shot. You said, "I would yeah." As a, a year before I was incarcerated, a friend shot me. Uh, it was a mistake, but a friend shot me um, in my building, in an elevator in my building. And and did you suffer severely? As yeah, a I mean, I was shot in my leg and my foot actually. Um, and you know, to this day, I still have you know residual pain from it, like a little bit of nerve damage from there. Um, but even in that instance. Um, I didn't really understand at that point in time 
the gradual danger I was I was putting myself in in that point in time around weapons and things like nature. Even after I was shot, um, I remember carrying a gun in my cast, right? Um, not realizing not realizing the gravity of what I was in or the, the circumstance I was in. And you know, this is I was an eighteen year old kid who graduated from high school, right? So you know, I, I want to give those nuances to the conversation because once again, we think about incarceration and trauma in just one very small category. And I seen like the, the 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 scope and the, how how wide how as I said earlier it's a catch all for Black and Brown bodies particularly. Um, I mean, it's really important because, like, yeah, I mean, this is this is I think why what's really fascinating about this book is you you kind of delve into the gray areas and and the huge like the actual human story of of these statistics that many people specifically on the left are you know wanting to address because they're seeing like the 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 numbers and. And you know, one out of three black men go to jail. Uh, you know, the majority of, of 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 households, specifically in public housing in New York, are women-led households because of that. And so these statistics need to be addressed. But there's nuance and there's complexity and there's how it shapes a community and how it shapes uh, you know every person's upbringing. Depend, you know, no matter what your childhood was like. So you end up in this horrifying situation in which you were a bystander, right? Um, you were a lookout. Do you, do you want to tell the story about how how you ended up uh, being? You know, um, you served ten years, right? And I served ten years. Yeah, yeah. I was initially facing a life sentence because so I was a lookout in a crime in which four people were shot um, and two people were killed um, uh, in in New York City here in Manhattan. Uh, at the time, I was a kid, I was nineteen, and it was five people all together who were a part of the uh, who were arrested for it, and. Uh, people from my neighborhood. Um, and it was just sort of, you know, people don't think about even to this day, like I speak to my family members about it, but it was literally just hanging out. We were just hanging out and somebody- What were the events? Like, how did this lead up? These oh, okay. yeah, there, was a, there was a store in, in the city in Manhattan that um, one of my friends at the time knew that, you know, they would have money at the store at a certain time. They have a, a chunk of money apparently. And they said, that, well, we can rob the store. And um, they were actually, in a funny way, they were just talking about it around me um, and not actually saying Marlon be a part of this. And because we were hanging out with each other, I was like, yo, I could be down with it. Let me, what you need me to do? Without actually even, and you know, it, it sounds so, sort of like naive and maybe it is a lot of naivete in, involved with it. Um, but once again, I said a year earlier, I was shot. So I really wasn't concerned. I wasn't really aware of the danger I was putting myself in, even at that point in time. You were experiencing trauma also. Like, let's let's keep reminding folks, you've experienced multiple traumas at this point, which, and you're young and, and that, there's a million things, factors yeah. there, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I always say, I don't want people to think that to excuse my, excuse me for it, or that I didn't deserve some accountability for what I was a part of. What I am saying though, is that like how, how easy it was to be a part of something so tragic. And that many of the crimes, and you know, I spent a good time, uh, probably the last five years of my sentence, helping other men prepare for their release from prison. And how so many of the people who were a part of some very heinous experiences, it was just a moment. People say about a moment of one second of indecision. Literally, is that the thing about it is when I go back to the communities that we come from, the options, the opportunities to participate in these things are, are always there. Right, they're always there because they're also very limited options to do other things and left limited exposure to be a part of other things. And you're dealing with multiple traumas. You know, in the book, you know, I, you know, I, I think the flashpoints for people is the sexual assault and the shooting and the um, arrest and conviction, which are important, are huge. 
but I speak about very small things that were happening every day, not only to me, but to people around me. And the fact that it's amazing that most people don't end up in the places that I ended up in, right? And that speaks to the resilience. So the book is also like a freedom song because it's also speaking to the resilience and the possibilities that we have because I know we can get through those things. So you you end up, um, you're with your friends and you're hanging out and they um, have this idea to go Rob, did they have any, had any of them ever been involved to your knowledge then or now uh, in any sort of violent acts or robberies or anything, you know, in this realm before? Well, I can say that three of the people involved in it who were, who were arrested for it, um, I met a day before. So I didn't even know them. It was literally we hanging outside and somebody said, let's do this, right? Because we would, you know, in another vein, earlier that week, we they were like, "Let's." I was with some friends. Let's go to this park and play basketball. I didn't know them, so let's just go do that. Um, and so one of the people that I knew well, very well, and I didn't know him to be like that at that time. In fact, he was somebody in my neighborhood who people would be like, "Marlon, you should be like him. He stays in the house more, and you know all those sort of things." He's a little bit older than me, but I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't see that. Right? I, I, I probably should have. Be clear, I probably should have in hindsight, I do now, but as a kid, I saw he was somebody who's probably somebody I should try to follow because he wasn't outside hanging out, smoking and running around the streets like I was at the time. Um, so when you know, we all went to the city that day together, and I always remember, um, like that drive from Brooklyn to Manhattan because the crime happened in Manhattan was one of the most quietest rides to Manhattan, which is about a 20 minute ride from where we were at in Crown Heights. No one was saying anything. And, and then for me in hindsight, I know that everybody was scared in that car, but nobody wanted to say anything. Um, and of course, in hindsight, I would say, I wish I had said something. I wish this person had said something. No one did obviously. And, and people paid their lives for it because we were scared and ignorant and traumatized and all those things. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's how it happened. And, and, and when the shooting happened, I wasn't in the store. I was actually across the street from it. I didn't even actually know. Like, it, by the, I remember the gentleman, the, the guys walked into the store, the guys who I was with, my co-defendants, and less than 30 seconds later, shots rang out. And I didn't expect anybody to, I didn't know what was happening. I, 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 you know, I remember going out when it happened, I was across the street and I just saw them running. And I, and I didn't know what was happening. And then I saw them run in a different direction. And then I saw people shooting after them. And I was completely confused, like what was happening here? And I remember uh, I took the train, I just took the train, came back home and I turned the news on and it was a special report, that report. And it said that what had happened and the people that were shooting at them came to find out were uh, undercover narcotics police who were, do, who were in the neighborhood on a separate uh, investigation. So they were shooting at them. And, you know, then I find out that four people were shot and I see this on the news. Um, and obviously I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a, I just don't know what happened, right? I had never been a part of anything like that um, in my life at that point. And, you know, since then either. And uh, three days later, the police came to my house and arrested me. And, and funny, I didn't know the police were looking for me. I didn't, in my mind, you know, I didn't think the police were after me for anything. I, I was actually, for what it's worth, I was more concerned about, dang, you know, my boy, like what he get himself right. into. Right? I'm thinking about, I need to get clothes for him because he's at Rikers Island. I need to figure out how to support him. In my mind, the police are not looking for me. So they arrested me um, in my bill, in my, in my, in, right in front of my family. Um, oh my God. I had a pair of shorts. I was actually coming from a neighbor's house. 
uh, watching videotapes. And I had some videotapes in my hand. I never forget, I had some videotapes in my hand. And, you know, I came out my elevator, the same elevator that I was shot in, actually. I come out my elevator and they, you know, are you Marlon Peterson? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, get against the wall. And, you know, that was the last time I saw my uh, family uh, 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 until 2009. So it happened in 1999. And next time I saw my family was in 2009. Did you, when you came home that day, um, and you're watching the news, had you said to your family that you were there, that you knew what had happened or did they, I mean, no. Hey, they, I, so I didn't say anything to anybody. Once again, I, you know, I would keep things to myself. So I didn't say anything to them. Um, but we all knew that, you know, the you know, person in our building was, was on involved. The, involved. So I remember them saying like, you sure you had nothing to do with this? Cause I know you know him. And I was like, nah, nah, you know, in my mind at the time, one is that, you know, I didn't want to be connected to it. Uh, and, and I guess, you know, so there was some level of guilt there that I was there. I want to be clear about it. There's some level of guilt like that I was there. But it wasn't to the level where I thought that I was culpable of anything, you know. Um, uh, and, and so we were all, when we were arrested, we were all facing a death penalty. So in New York State, at that time, the death penalty was still on the books. So because of what the level of the crime um, and the heinous and the horrors of the, of, the, of the incident, which is horrible, completely horrible, and still is because there are people today who don't have a family member, right? Um, and, uh, but we were all facing a death penalty um, initially. Um, and that's why it took about three years before I was end up, ended up actually getting sentenced. Um, I eventually took a plea of 12 years, um, uh, a prison time. I, I, so what's I think hard for a lot of people to understand is you're across the street, look out or not, the cops came, didn't matter. Uh, how, how would they say you're an, I mean, be, be an accomplice? What's this? The statute is actually one of the oldest statutes in in, in uh, American law and uh, come from English common law. It's called a felony homicide rule. So in the act of committing a felony, which was the robbery, a homicide happened. So everybody who is a part of the commission of the felony are now charged with the homicide, right? I think that's something that needs to be relooked because there are a lot of people who are in jail for that thing that a friend of theirs did the thing and they didn't know the friend was going to do their thing. But the other part of it, you know, I also speak about it in terms of a larger macro issue that Donald Trump should be in jail then, right? I, I, I'm going on a, on a larger issue, but because the issue of felony of course, homicide yeah. is that, you know, in the commission of a thing or in the incitement of a thing, something else happened that you couldn't believe that you didn't expect to happen, but you're not responsible for it. Um, that felony homicide statute is what takes a lot of black and brown kids, particularly into the system. Um, you ever think about, um, they have these things kind of like, uh, uh, they go into uh, housing projects, particularly here in New York City, where they're actually after probably one, two to three people, but they know that there's a whole community of people of young boys and girls who are, might've hung out, might've been on Facebook with them, might've, you know, what have you, and they now get them all. It's called conspiracy in the federal, in the federal, in federal courts on a state level, usually felony homicide or felony, you know, those sort of things. But, you know, I want people to also interrogate that, this felony homicide statute. Um, I think it requires interrogation. We're thinking about the criminal legal space and all and how terrible it is in and of itself and how so many people get in there in the first place. And we want to think about not only reducing, but really about ending it completely, right? Um, we need to start, one way to start, one way to start to like to really interrogate that felony homicide statute. I think it's something that, 
Um, there, there are many cases around the country where there are young where people who have served 20, 30, 40 years in prison under the felony homicide statute where they were a part of a thing because they hung out with this person and the person went and did the homicide or what or the sexual assault. Like, I, I, here's the thing, Namiki, like this book, I mean, not only the book, the work I've done, I don't want to just focus, this book is actually a culmination of a lot of work I've done for the last 15 years or so. Is really pushing people to um, question the things that we think are normal about how we deal with harm in our society. Um, and I think it's super important because as we're in a place where you have now criminal justice, you know, not now, but within recent five years or so, criminal justice reform is a thing on everybody's tongue. The left is on it. The right is on it. You know, the conservative, the, the, the radical right is on it. I don't know if we are actually really getting to the root of how pervasive the tentacles of the system are and how it captures certain people in certain communities, particularly in the urban areas. Because we all hang out with each other. <laughs> you know what I mean? We all hang out. We all do things with each other. And it's so easy. So in one place, the book is about really questioning the system. But the other part of the book is about, you know, really looking into ourselves. You know, the second half of the book, second half, the title of the book is an abolitionist freedom song. And, you know, abolition, one of the core tenets of abolition is about getting to the root of the thing, getting to the root. And while, you know, I consider myself an abolitionist in very real terms, I understand that abolition is a process of getting to the root, but also is a process of creation, like what we can do next, right? Um, of course, we can't close all prisons yesterday. We should but we need to get to the root of why this is happening in the first place. And, and I spent a lot of time in this book and also in the TED talk also, I spent a lot of time really getting to the trauma and not in a way that is overwhelming, right? I, I don't be browbeat you about the trauma, but I, I speak about it in a way that, speak, that shows the everyday micro traumas that people sort of just move on, move beyond. I think they move beyond, but when things come, when, you know, at, but at some point those things explode. Yeah. You know, you can move through a trauma, you can survive. Um, but getting to the root of that trauma, which is really part of a systemic issue, getting to the root of the systemic issue, of course. Um, was, we never talk about it. We never, yeah. And, and, and the incredible, uh, results. One of the incredible results of the George Floyd uprisings and Breonna Taylor uprisings of the last summer is, for once, we're having a more um, a deeper conversation with with allies. Maybe I guess is the best way, and people who are learning um, about these systemic issues and just how much these tentacles are ingrained into our system. And watching the trial of George Floyd right now, uh, hearing the voices of people from the community, um, from all aspects of the community who recognized the injustice there, but those voices never get brought into the conversation. And, um, I think people are starting to kind of like see it in a different way, but it's, it's, it's just the beginning. So you, I mean, you, you served for 10 years in prison. Um, what happened when when you were released? Like, where was your mind? I mean, were you going through a process while you were in prison of understanding who you are and understanding the system and how understanding how these tentacles, or did that happen afterwards? What was the process? That happened inside, definitely inside. Um, I'm somebody who kind of went into myself, so I didn't actually interact with a lot of people early on during the, in, the, in the sentence, but. Um, 
as I said, for the latter half of the sentence, I spent a lot of time like preparing myself to come home through preparing other people to come home, right? And um, and I also earned a criminal justice degree while inside, right? Not And it wasn't through the prison, it was through a correspondence program. Because I wanted to sort of study not only like, you know, pay attention to me, but I need to understand this system in a way in which criminal justice professionals understand it as well, right? Um, so in so many ways, I was in the system studying the system. It was a <laughs> it was an involuntary academic sort of uh, uh, endeavor. <laughs> um, but also, um, I had I grew up in prison. You know, I spent my entire twenties there, um, and I learned how to be an adult there. Um, and, and and I had to grow up faster than obviously most people because early on I used I was usually the youngest person whatever jail or they had put me in. So I also had to learn how to navigate myself, navigate in a way that I also preserve my life, right? I didn't go to prison with, like, I wasn't a part of any gang structure. I didn't have an older brother, cousin, father, uncle who had experienced the system. I was literally the first person in my family to experience it. So, you know, I always give this joke, like, I didn't know what commissary was. I remember when we, you know, the first time they, they said, we're going to commissary. I was like, what does that mean? Like, what is that thing? And that's where you go to get food. I'm like, where can you get food from? Like, I didn't know there were stores. And like, yeah, I'm just speaking about how ignorant, naive I was to the process. Um, so I had to learn everything from scratch. And, you know, I can say by the end of the decade that I spent there, um, I learned a couple of things. One thing is I learned about how capable I am of like surviving things. I also learned about how I learned the power of humanity in prison. I always had learned more about humanity in prison than I did out here, right? Because I was around every sort of person you would think about, religious, uh, gender or uh, sexual sexual orientation, gender expression, um, folks who whatever type of crime you can think about, from the worst to the to the not not so bad, whatever that means. And I learned because of the work I was doing inside. I had I learned their biographies beyond that experience, and it, it, it just I had to drop some of my own prejudices and biases. I learned to not be homophobic by being in prison. Right, I learned that. I mean, I learned that there, and not because there was some class or anything like that, but because I saw people there. I saw them more than the the the, the prejudiced way I was sort of conditioned to see, you know, people in certain ways. I learned to sort of see people who were in gangs. I had a way of I had a certain prejudice against people who were in gangs, believe it or not. Right, but I, some of my best friends were people who were in gang, and in fact, I started a program. I co-started a program uh, in prison called Hala, How Our Lives Link All Together which is a mentorship program that started in prison that, that we implemented in schools throughout New York City. And in fact, it was highlighted on Ava's uh, documentary, 13th. But I started with folks who were, who are in gangs, right? And there's so many to see, like, that's just a title, that's a label, you know? Um, I mean, I, I want to say this, but also that all the things I was able to do inside of prison um, was despite prison. Because part of what people can get out of this story, listen to you, Nomiki, know, is that, well, well, prison did good for you. Prison did a lot of harm to me that right now thousands of dollars of therapy is working out to this day. And I've been home 11 years now and I've been able to travel the world. I've been able to speak in prisons and all over the world and do a lot of things, right? Um, but there's still residues of that experience that I'm still brushing off, and, you know? And, and, and so when I, you know, you know, in the book, I, and actually I think the last words in the book is happiness is next. So, the, so this book is a memoir, but it's definitely, and I think the best type of memoir is one that's incomplete, you know, because you, you know, people think that you're supposed to write, this will happen to me and look at me now, the end, 
Ta-da! And don't get me wrong, I'm a much, much more responsible human being without question, insightful, wise, and all those sorts, and matured. But there's still things that we, the abolitionist politic requires that we are constantly working on ourselves, constantly dusting away prejudices, constantly dusting off stereotypes. Um, and that includes the people who did time, right? It's not, I'm, I'm still somebody who, when I see a crime happen or I hear about a, a horrific thing that happened, particularly now when you think about the Asian, the Asian American violence that's happened in the country, yes, those people need to go away. But then I need to question myself. And the reason why I need to question myself because I also know that prison is not the place where they're gonna get better. Now, there's definitely a conversation around um, removing people from who are capable of harming people again. That's definitely a legitimate concern. But prison only, only started in so many ways offer a solution to one thing. Like they can hold somebody away for a period of time, but it's not helping them. People heal despite prison, not because of it. And I want that's the thing for people to really key in. They, we heal despite it, not because of it. So once again, we're getting to like the root, you know, and, and that that this book is not only about people who have been spent time in prison. I think this book is relatable to people in any sort of strata of our society, right? Because um, we all have cages in so many ways that prevents us from getting to the root of why we're not progressing, why we're harmful to our partner, our child, our whom we're not we're not productive as we want to be in our own personal life and our own mental health. It, you know, the opening words of the book is, "I do not believe in cages of any kind." Let me tell you why. And that applies to everybody. It's just that prisons are the most visible display display of human hurt. Humans decide we have figured out a way to, to deal with our hurt by hurting other people. Because we all know that prisons hurt. We all have jokes, right? We all hear the comedians. What happens when you go to prison? Don't drop the soap. All those things. And I am, I am somebody who laughs, I don't want to say in past sense, who laughs at those jokes. But one of the things we're not recognizing that those jokes are actual human beings. And we know consciously that if you go there, things like that can happen to you. But, you know, we block it out, we laugh it away, we think, well, you deserve that harm. And we can reckon, we can, in some ways, we can justify that maybe some people deserve retribution. But we also got to realize that retribution does not make a society better. Right. So, you know, you, you go into prison very young, you're, you're 19 years old, I believe, or, or you were senten you're sentenced at 19? No, I went, I uh, got arrested at 19. You sentenced. got arrested. Got it. Okay. Um, it's, it's, it's incredible that at such a young age, entering this space that you're completely unfamiliar with, uh, you have no ties, no family ties, no, you know, there's, there's really no consciousness of what you're getting into, um, that you at some point made a decision to really like take the time and do what you could with it. Was that immediate, eventual? Like how did that process, because that is a psychological process, that's a headspace, that's a meditative space you have to get in and be in, in I mean, it's, it's when I hear these transformative stories, I, I think how on earth after all of this trauma and this environment that is just full of toxicity and, and survival and, um, you know, and you're feeling like the system already wronged you, I assume, which it did. Uh, how can you get to a space of, okay, this is how I am going to make the best of my time here and do something with it for others eventually. I started writing to myself. You know, I mean, I think at the core I'm a writer, I'm an activist and all those other things, but I'm a writer. So I just started 
right? Keeping a journal. And, you know, a lot of folks in prison speak about that, keeping journals. For me, that was the safest place for me because it was the safest place for me because it was the place I can write down everything I didn't know and my frustrations and my fears and even dreams, right? Um, and it helped me in so many ways inter interrogate where I went wrong, right? I didn't go wrong on October 16th, on October 13th, 1999, when the crime happened. That's not when I went wrong, right? I had to sort of realize I went wrong way before that. When I say I went wrong, um, understanding that there were things that triggered me, that I had never sat and just understood that these things were, were really working in my subconscious. Um, and then so from that process, eventually I got involved. And I should also say I became somewhat religious for a part of my bid. I, I said I raised as Jehovah's Witness. So for early part of my sentence, I started, you know, like really getting into the Bible more. I actually read the Bible, I would say a joke, a brag that I read the Bible three times, right? And like book by book and studied it and started going to the Greek and, you know, the Hebrew Aramaic and all that sort of stuff to sort of understand it. Um, I eventually evolved beyond religious texts. But those are some of the things I think that helped me realize that, well, Marlon, you had certain gifts as a young person. Like I was a valedictorian as a kid, honor roll student, all those sort of things. And that you shied away from those things because you thought that the way to survive in your neighborhood was to be a different type of person, right? And so me being able to get in touch with who I was in a way um, helped me realize that, oh, I can offer things to other people now, right? I had certain foundations that Sally, you know, many other folks around me didn't have. Right, I was literate, you know what I mean? Um, I'm just using that as an example. Um, and I had a family that cared for me, right? I had a family that cared for me. We didn't have a lot and they couldn't see me or anything like that often, but I knew I had those things. Sorry for the background, I'm in Brooklyn, so. All good, you know, we're New Yorkers. <laughs> you know how it is. We're used to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but those are some of the things that helped me get to the path of where I said like, you know, as a, as a young person, you know, the 20 is still relatively, relatively young. Um, that there was things I could contribute. And, I, and actually there's one moment, there's a flashpoint that I speak about in the TED talk and in the book that really helped me realize that, oh wow, I'm worth something. Because a part of what I, you know, when you, the crime again, becoming incarcerated, particularly for the things that I was, you know, I felt like a piece of, can we curse on this? I don't know, but you know, I felt like a piece of shit, right? I felt like so terrible, right? And I felt like I'm worthless, right? And the system, you know, compounds that. Um, and as I would speak about uh, Dr. Dr. Nadia Lopez, a, a friend from my neighborhood who was a teacher at the time at a middle school had reached out to me, uh, wrote a letter to me maybe five or six years into the sentence and was, uh, you know, telling me about her, you know, her, her, her life as a teacher, but also about the struggles that she has in like having her young people who, who are middle school students, you know, really understand like the dangers that's around them and that, you know, they need to sort of express what's going on in their lives. So she asked me to write a, you know, uh, a letter to them, some words of wisdom as, as, as in the letter. I still have the actual letter here. And, you know, I reluctantly wrote it because I didn't think that I was, in my mind, I was questioning, why would she ask me? Isn't there somebody else better than me that she can reach out to? I, like I'm in prison. Why would you think I can offer anything? Um, so I eventually took up her offer, wrote the letter. And, um, about three weeks after I wrote the letter, I was in the cell, my cellmate, and you know, I got a big manila envelope from the mail on my gate that I was in. And I didn't get a lot of mail and definitely not manila envelopes. And it was a letter from her, like an open letter, at, you know, from the school. And it was 17 letters. All, this, all one of her classes, all the young people wrote me a letter. Um, and that turned into a correspondence program 
where she also sent me, she, so she started sending me books about writing curriculum, developing curricula. So I devoured those things. So it turned into a program where I would create curricula that she would implement in her character education component of her class with her kids, uh, and, and, and along with a general letter and a prompt for the young people to write me. And she, they, they would write the letters and she would screen them and send them back to me. And, and so that process went back and forth for about a year. And, and you know, I would catch myself writing up to 50 letters every time because it, it, it became so popular that kids from other classes heard about it and they wanted to be a part of it too. Um, that, that, so we had called it the Young Scholars Program. That program led to HALA, the program that I spoke to you about earlier. Um, that gave me a sense of purpose and a sense of like relevancy, you know? Um, and, and, uh, and that's in so many ways, that's why I'm, I'm here with you today, why I have a book, right? In so many ways, because there was somebody who saw a possibility in me. Incredible. You know? That's incredible. Um, wow, really, really beautiful. And, and now, you know, when, when you were released, I mean, in the work you've been doing over the last, you know, decade and uh, 12 years, um, has been working with, with people who have had similar experiences. How do you, how do you come out of the prison system, uh, a system that is just, you know, in every single way, the life leading up to it, we, everything we've been discussing, how do you get into this mindset that you've, you've gotten into? And so what is the kind of work that you do now with, with folks? Yeah, I mean, I, so HALA was one program that we started and is still functioning. Another youth program that I had created here in Brooklyn was called, is called uh, Youth Organizing to Save Our Streets. So we would train teenagers or teenage, uh, yeah, teenagers, high school age, teenage uh, young folks to be organizers, community organizers around violence and gun violence prevention. Um, and, uh, you know, so, and that's still functioning. Um, and since then I've been able to sort of advise and inform around larger issues around criminal criminal justice and violence in our communities. And some of that's through public speaking, some of that has been through writing. So, you know, I've, I've, I've written in a lot of places about these issues from a, from a practitioner standpoint. Um, and I've been able to sort of like have these same dialogues with people in, as I mentioned earlier, in prisons, but in other parts of the world as well. I've been able to visit, you know, I've been able to visit prisons in Trinidad, where my family's from, or in South Africa, working on a project now in New Zealand. So, like, you know, it, it's, in South Africa, I am in a place of constantly learning how deep criminalization is, one, how deeply embedded into our fabric of society it is, but also, but also constantly experiencing the possibilities of people who have had some of the worst luck in life. You know what I mean? I just kind of want to just put it like that. The possibilities in that and amplifying it. So, you know, there's a podcast, right? And the podcast is about amplifying the, the journeys of success of people who spend time in jails and prisons. And, you know, some people as, you know, Shaka Senghor, who is Oprah's, apparently now Oprah's best friend, right? Um, like his story, right? And because I understand the biographies. The thing that I learned my time away was that the, the as I said, the biographies of people are so much more important than the flashpoint of harm that they were a part of. And that's the abolitionist politic. Getting to that root, I keep going to that because that's the second half of this book, the title of the book, Bird Uncaged, an abolitionist freedom song. I want uh, my work, not only during the last five or six years of my incarceration, but definitely during the last decade has been always trying to get to the root of what's happening in individuals' lives. And, but I, and that also requires that we look at state violence as well. Yeah. 
Sometimes I was also very critical of state violence, police violence, because we can't only look internally at Marlin or Crown Heights or my homies that I hung out with. We are also also being but also being influenced by what's happening around us. And I'll give you this one example, and it's very current. In the, in the Derek Chauvin trial, there was a young, a young person who testified, a, a nine or 10-year-old person who testified. A nine, 10-year-old person experienced that trauma. And they are not the first person at that age. We all experienced, we, we, the video was screened. I mean, it was on, on all our feeds, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, all the places. Those things happen daily or almost daily to young people. And so state violence is directly educating people about how one a sort of sense of learned hopelessness that like, this is just how it's going to be. And also one, I can't look to you to help me if something happens to me. And my fact, I'm also just keep it to myself because maybe it's safe. I just keep it to myself. Like these are all the messages that are coming from the state and that the state is not here to protect you. And then you go to your neighborhood and you have some people, other young girls, boys, people, humans who are also traumatized and are probably hurting you because they're traumatized, right? And then, and so I always say, it's amazing. I know the power of us. You know, I always think particularly black and brown folks, how powerful we are because most of us don't go to jail. Most of us don't go there. And that speaks about, I'm so, I'm, 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 of course, that's great to know, but it also speaks to how powerful we are. And I want to always sort of amplify that and lift that up too, because with the trauma, we've also found ways to conquer it and move beyond it and grow beyond it. And I want to amplify that more. And I also want us who have been through those things to see how powerful we are and that, you know, it isn't jail that saved you. It isn't prison that saved you. You have agency and it just so happened that you were in a certain place and that agency showed up. But when I look back in my own life, there were... Obviously, not speak to you about the things that happened happened to me as a teenager. There were no interventions happening at all, and one might say, "Well, you didn't say anything about it." I didn't know you're, that it was a you thing were a kid. to do. What are you supposed to do? Yeah, you know. And so many young people are dealing with that every day, and I want people to sort of see that part of the young person, see the root of why they are doing the things that they're doing. Because no baby is born wanting to hurt somebody else. They learn that idea. Hurt people, hurt people, but the systemic Absolutely. abuse is what's facilitating this. And and I mean, I think it's really incredible um, that you say, despite everything, um, people are resilient and and pushing through despite every single obstacle along the way, every systemic obstacle, the the traumas that you're facing, traumas in the community, uh, the traumas people are pushing on each other. Resiliency is really it. Um, Marlon Peterson, such an incredible conversation and, and really a beautiful book. And thank you for, for sharing and sharing your story and really uh, using your life and your life's experience to, to address not only systemic issues to educate a larger audience, but to work with people directly. Um, it's really a beautiful use of your time on this planet. Thank you, thank you. Heal people, heal people. Healed people, heal people. I love that. Beautiful thank response. Thank you, Marlon Peterson. Thank you.